so Nath, do you want to come up and we will pray for you? Yeah, Lord, thanks for Nathan, Lord. Thanks for all the time that he's put in prepping, Lord. Not just prepping for this sermon, Lord, but thank you that we know that Nathan is a faithful servant of you, Lord, that he is steeped in your word, that he's a man of prayer, Lord. We thank you for the witness of his life, Lord. And we pray for, just as Nath preached today, preaches today, we pray uh, for your Holy Spirit to take the words that he preaches and make them alive in our hearts and minds, Lord. We pray that uh, we will not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, Lord. And we pray that uh, that which the word that Nath brings to us from Ephesians will really will change us, Lord, that we would be sanctified and become more like you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thanks, Nath. Thanks, Johannes. Morning, everyone. I just need to quickly get my, some of my props here. Uh, maybe. Thank you, thank you. Yes, please. Cool. So for those of you who do not know me, my name's Nathan, um, and I'm married to Mandy, who is in the mom's room. We have two little girls, Elizabeth and Ruth, and um, yeah, we were ordained as elders last week, which was really such an incredible privilege for us, and I really want to thank you guys for receiving us um, so well. Um, and it's possibly the first time I've cried in my life, so I'm glad you guys could experience that. Um, so this morning, again, we're in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're in the third kind of part of the book of Ephesians, and I just want to quickly recap it for us, and I want to reiterate just to go and access those resources. Like in Ephesians is, especially for those of you kind of seeking and you're wanting to understand, like, what is the gospel? Ephesians is an incredible book where Paul kind of lays out the truths of the gospel. Um, so essentially, the three parts in Christ uh, was the first part, and this is basically the, it speaks about the truth and kind of like the cosmic redemptive purposes of God in Jesus. Then secondly, we went, we went into the church as a future. And this basically speaks about the mission and the unity of uh, the church. And, and that the church is kind of uh, like a group of diverse people that God is using and that he has a future for. And this morning we found ourselves in the third part, which is walk this way. And Paul's kind of giving us, uh, basically laying out for us what. Um, proper conduct looks like in the church, uh, in the home, and in society. Sorry, I'm getting thirsty. Um, basically, he's saying th- there's ideas of what he's wanting us to put off and what he's wanting us to put on. Um, and essentially, it's about living in, in renewed with renewed lives and in lives of holiness. So this is where we're finding ourselves is like, Paul's taken us through, you have a new life, now you're a, pu- a people made up of, of diverse people groups, and now there's something that I'm wanting you to walk in. And uh, I actually love in the ESV in chapter 4, which kind of flags some of the beginnings of this, that the entitle there is, is new life. And for me, that's so powerful, because in chapters 1 and 2, Paul's like describing beautifully, like you've been brought out of death. You know, like you weren't, almost in a way, you weren't even swimming in the ocean and you needed rescue, but actually you were dead and at the bottom of the ocean and Jesus came in and rescued you and brought you into new life. And I saying, you have new life, now live in that new life, which I think is really significant for us. Thank you, I need it. Keep it going. Um, so we have been made alive and this is what the new life looks like. That's what Paul's kind of describing for us. So we're going to be in Ephesians 4, 31 and uh, 2, 5, verse 2. So if you can turn with me, 
Um, and we can just read together there. So Ephesians 4, verse 31. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then chapters 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So as I was kind of reading and preparing for this, I was reminded of uh, Tom's structure that he went through a couple of weeks ago um, in Ephesians. And here we see a very similar structure. So we see there's something that Paul's wanting us to put off, and then there's something that Paul's wanting us to put on, and then he kind of gives us the reason for that and some of the methodology and how we do that. And this is the structure we're going to follow this morning. We're going to do three things. We're going to speak about what is Paul wanting us to put off, then what is Paul wanting us to put on, and then how do we actually do that? What, what's kind of like the method of change um, in how we do that and bringing some kind of understanding there? And I really felt in preparing this that I'm hoping that as I bring understanding in like the method of change, that that's going to apply not only specifically to anger and kindness that we see in this text, but actually some of the other sins and some of the other things that we sometimes walk in, that we'll better understand what it means to change and how we change as a Christian. So let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll get going. Father God, I want to ask, by your Spirit, you would show us what it means to walk in love, what it means to walk in the newness of life that you've brought us into. And I want to pray, King, that this morning you wouldn't just bring kind of new sets of understanding. You know, we are reminded again, oh, anger is wrong. Oh, I should be kind. But actually that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us the power to actually change. I ask, Father God, that you wouldn't, yeah, we wouldn't leave with just changed minds, but actually changed, not, changed lives, that the newness of life that we've experienced would start to be uh, our lived experience and then be expressed out and displayed, that we would display your love as we walk in love and show your love to people around us. So I pray that you'd be with us this morning. We thank you that your word is alive, and we pray that you'd speak to us powerfully. Amen. Cool. So firstly, Paul is calling us to put something off, to take something off. We see this in verse 31, chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you along with all malice. So we see Paul kind of uses like six different words here. There are like six different ways that he describes something. But I think what he's basically doing is, is he's describing one emotion. Essentially, he's describing anger. And it, it could be understood that Paul may be moving kind of from like the emotion. So you have these kind of emotions of anger that then kind of express themselves in different ways. Um, and, but I think essentially what he's actually trying to do is he's, he's building up these words to show us some of the seriousness of this emotion. Like some of the seriousness of what he's calling us to put off. And I think what he's also doing is he's, he's describing anger in different ways because actually, and I'm sure we'll know this in our own lives, anger is felt in very different ways by different people, and it's also expressed in very different ways by, by different people. Some people express anger in like a violent manner, you know, towards one another, but other people express it maybe quietly and resentfully. 
And Paul is saying, you know, the root here is the same thing. You'll see the word there, clamor, which actually basically means like shouting. You know, some people express their anger as they shout at one another. Others do it in slander. You know, these kind of like soft lies about someone else as they feel anger towards another individual. And I want us to kind of, I guess, warn us in a way. You know, some of us might feel, and for me, sometimes I feel this way as well. You know, it's like you think of your neighbor um, who kind of like, they shout at each other and you're sitting in your house and like, oh, what the heck's going on there? Shouting, throwing plates around and they're expressing their anger in that kind of way. And you think, you know what, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. But I felt as I was preparing that is like, you know, some of us, maybe you, you know, you ignore your wife for an afternoon because you feel angry. Or your parents, you know, for a couple of days because you feel angry. And I feel like, God, like God's saying here through Paul, hey, you just, you know, you're actually as bad because the root of it is, is the same. You've allowed anger to flood your heart and then you're allowing it to be expressed either through silent resentment or through violent kind of clamor. So both are rooted in bitterness as anger is flooding your heart. So Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And I, I don't want to, you know, come, kind of come like brazenly here. It's like putting off anger is really hard. It's not an easy thing. It's something that's really, really hard for us to do. And I'm not talking about, you know, even uh, Tom a few weeks ago was describing a righteous anger. You know, Jesus actually lived out a righteous anger. And there are moments in the world where we should be angry. You know, when we face injustices in the world, there's a, there's a righteous type of anger that we should feel. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. I think we're talking about that kind of self-pride where, you, you know, your own self has been hurt and now you, you're responding in anger. And it's that type of anger, and I don't know if you've um, experienced it, but you just kind of feel like, sheesh like I'm angry. And like I actually quite enjoy being angry. I don't know if you felt that. I felt it. It's quite nice to be angry. Like maybe I should just stay in this kind of anger until the person realizes what they did. Like they obviously don't get it. Like they really hurt me and I should just stay being angry. And maybe while I'm staying being angry, I'll feel some kind of self-justification and the other person will actually start feeling, you know, how bad they should feel because of what they've done to me. And I don't think that's just me. I think most of us can relate to that. We have this kind of anger that kind of feels good. And I was um, <clears throat> recently faced with a similar a kind of situation where anger re- kind of swelled up in my heart. Um, some of you might be shocked. I'm quite a docile person. But um, I was, we were at Fergelergen, good Afrikaans, not bad. Um, with, I was with Elizabeth, who we were playing in the jungle gym. And like, as we got there, she saw these two girls playing in the jungle gym. She's like, oh, wow, there's some, like, she, she likes friends. So she's like, oh, wow, there's some friends that I can go play with. Um, and so we're swinging for a while, and then eventually she wants to go up, and she wants to go down this like, big slide. So she starts to climb up the ladder. And as she's climbing up, these two girls, they're quite a bit older than her, probably about six, they stand at the top of the ladder, and they kind of put their feet out to, like, stop her from getting up. And she gets scared, and she, like, just goes, like, full tortoise mode. <laughs> Cripes like this, and she, she actually started screaming. Like, she was quite scared. Um, so anyways, I went to her, and I said, you know, don't worry, I'm here. And 
But inside of me, there was like quite a bit of anger. It's like, sheesh, who do you think you are coming and bullying my girl? Like, I should probably give you a piece of my mind. Um, But what was interesting is that even as that anger kind of arose, I didn't respond out of that anger. And it wasn't even like I had to like actively say, like, no, respond in kindness. It kind of just dropped, and I felt that I could respond in kindness. So anyways, so I asked these two girls, you know, what's happening here? Why won't you let her up? And they say, no, we've got some stickers that we're playing with, and she's little, so we're worried she's going to come and take them. So I said, no, if she won't take them, don't worry. And anyway, so then she was able, they let her go, and she was able to go up and climb down the slide. Um, think about the implications, and I think this is, this is one of the powerful things about anger. Think about the implications of anger in that kind of situation if you let it be unleashed. You'll see even in verse 31, he's at, at the end, Paul says that it, it's describing anger, and then he says, along with all malice, that as you let anger re- be released, there's malice that's released. And even there's a proverb which speaks about how, like, as you basically entertain anger, strife, is released in all kinds of relationships. And you can think of that moment. If I had, had acted in anger, shouted at these two girls, and then their moms come, and then it's like this whole thing, and it's all the tannies at Vergelachen, and it just becomes a whole spiel, like strife would have been kind of released into all these relationships. But as you kind of drop the anger, you let it be put away, you actually snuff out, of its, you snuff out its power. You know, the power that anger wanted to have is snuffed out and you respond in kindness. And hopefully through that moment, you can also then model and hopefully there model to Elizabeth what it looks like to respond in those kinds of situations where people aren't um, kind of being nice to you, that you don't have to respond in anger, but you can respond in kindness. Now, I want us to just notice something quickly here, and it took me a while to get it. I thought, or I hoped I would have got it quicker, but it took me a while to get it, and it was just from reading this over and over and over. And in verse 31, it says, let, notice the word let, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So Paul's saying here, let those things be put away from you. So it's actually what they call a passive verb. Paul's basically saying, have something happen to you. Not like you strip off anger of yourself, like let it be put away from you. Have something happen to you. I think Bates used this a little while ago. It's like saying, be phoned by your mom. It's like, how do you do that? Your mom phones you, but you need to, you need to be phoned by your mom. Um, but we see this idea so clearly in other passages of Scripture, this kind of passive verb. We see it in Romans 12, 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Something's transforming you, but you need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or Ephesians 5.18, and we'll be preaching on this in a few weeks. It says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So the Spirit does the filling. You're not filling yourself. The Spirit does the filling. But we call to be filled. We call to do something that the Spirit is doing to us. Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. What is it saying? Be in the strength of the Lord. You're in the strength of the Lord. Or even Ephesians 4.23 says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You're being renewed as you let the Spirit renew your mind. 
So what, is, what do we see Paul here asking us? He's basically asking us to do something which is essentially being done to us. Like, let that anger be put away from you. And I think uh, a key text for this is Romans 8.13. It says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And here's the key. But if you, by the Spirit, if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if we connect that Romans 8.13 passage with Ephesians 4.31, we see that it is by the Spirit that we let anger be put away. We do it as it is being done to us. And I am going to try and, in, in kind of the third section, kind of flesh this out a little bit more for us and help us to better understand it. So hang with me. But firstly, Paul is saying, hey, believer, hey, Christian, put off all kinds of anger. Let anger by the Spirit be put away from you. And then secondly, what is Paul calling us to put on? Let's read in verse 32. He says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So essentially, he's calling us to put on kindness, and he's calling us to put on forgiveness. He's saying, put on kindness and lay aside anger. Put on forgiveness and lay aside resentment. And I want us to just quickly note like the significance of kindness. You know, you might... I don't know if it's, if it's you as well, but kind of when I came here, I was like, sure, Paul, kindness. Like, you, is that the one you, you're really wanting to pick out here? Like, what's the significance of kindness? And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded about um, the book of Ruth. We're in our life group. We've been going through the book of Ruth for a little while. And as I've been reading this, I've just seen the power of kindness. Like, the power of kindness. Like, what God can use kindness for is, is truly astounding, and I would encourage you to go read that book. But just some of the ideas there is we see uh, uh, Naomi, her husband, Elimelech, they, Elimelech kind of takes them to the land of Moab with their two sons. And her two sons marry Moabite women. Her husband, Elimelech, dies. Her two sons die. And she ends up being a widow in a foreign land. And um, she then th- there was a famine in the land of Judea, and the famine kind of ceases, and then she's wanting to return back to Judea. Um, but again, she's going back alone and, and as a widow. And there's a moment there where Ruth then decides not to stay with her own people. So Ruth was one of the, one of the wives of one of her sons, not to stay with her own people, but actually to follow her back to, to Judea. Uh, and we see this. There's a moment of kindness of Ruth. You know, not self-preservation. She's being kind to care for someone else. And as the book goes on, there's like these small moments just glittered with kindness of, of people and the way that God's using that. And this kind of climaxes in, in, a, in a man called Boaz. And Boaz starts to provide for Naomi through Ruth in allowing um, Ruth to glean in his field. He was a farmer, to glean in his field. Um, and then eventually to become the kingsman redeemer, which was basically he would marry Ruth and then become the provider and the protector of Naomi's line and Elimelech. And that, and that actually then leads down through, through their son to David, who then leads down to Jesus. So it's this powerful story of what God's doing there. And we see small moments of kindness. You don't see this blatant act of God saying, I'm going to come here. I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to provide. He actually doesn't really say anything. 
But we see just the obedience of God's people through moments and choices that they're making to act in kindness, and we see that God, the way that God uses that. So I hope that helps us get just some of a glimpse of the power of kindness in our lives and in, and in a way to inspire us to say, Father, use moments where I can respond in kindness and help me to see what you're going to do through the people around me. And I want us to just note that this is not something, and we've, we've been coming back to this again and again and again, that is, you know, there's no four, five, six without one, two, three. This isn't something that's self-created. We don't self-create this kind person, but it's something that God has created in us, that he's created us new, and then we walk in it. You'll see Paul actually kind of reminds us of this at the end of, of verse uh, 32. He says, be forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. So he's not saying, you know, come tear this anger off of yourself, you know, tear the anger off and stick on kindness so that you look kind, but basically become something that God has already created you to be. And every time I go to this, and some of you would have heard this before, so you're probably like, oh, not again. But uh, I'm reminded of, John Piper has this analogy of a jellyfish and a dolphin. And there's like, he speaks about how we once were a jellyfish. And I love that because it's like, yo, a jellyfish, that's pretty harsh. Like we once were a jellyfish, like we were like kind of alive, but not really alive. And we're in the ocean and there's not, not much we can do. The ocean tides like take us wherever it wants. And through Jesus, we're, we're, we're transformed to a new creature. We're no longer jellyfish, we're now a dolphin. We're no longer this thing that's kind of like at the mercy of the tides and the waves, but we're a dolphin who has the, the ability to actually swim against tides and surf the waves. And it's this powerful picture of, you know, you're not just jellyfish 2.0, you're like, you've got to upgrade kind of thing, but you were created into a brand new creature, like you're a new creature. And, and dolphins kind of do what dolphins do. You know, you're not a jellyfish who's now trying to skin a dolphin and put the dolphin clothes on, and now you look like you're doing what you should be doing, but actually you're a jellyfish who's swimming like a, I'm uh, sorry, a dolphin who's swimming like a dolphin should do. So I hope that helps you. It's quite a strong imagery. It always stuck with me. Um, that through Christ we have been transformed. We have been made new, and now we have the power and ability to live in that newness. We do not put kindness on. Paul is not saying put kindness on as this kind of trope and say, Lord, look at my kindness. Accept me. He's saying you have been accepted. Your heart has been transformed into someone who's kind. Now walk in kindness. So our good works do not make us new. Our newness makes our works. The godly life, kindness and forgiveness is the outward way of being when we are inwardly new. So Paul says, put off anger, put off anger, put on kindness and forgiveness, but how do we do this? How do we change from a people who have callous hearts to those who are tender-hearted? So I'm wanting to kind of try and flesh this idea out a little bit, and it's basically this. How do we walk, so not only in reference to anger and kindness, but how do we walk in greater levels of obedience, in greater levels of holiness. How do we walk in love? So let's read Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. It says, therefore, so remember that that's a key word, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So how do we as a people who uh, are often too easily kind of angered, 
who, re- who respond in resentment and clamor, become a people who are tender-hearted and respond in kindness and forgiveness. And I think the first thing that Paul is telling us here is, is we become grounded in the gospel. Like we again remind ourselves of the beauty of the gospel. And you'll see he actually does this. Look at verse 32 and verse 1 to 2. Paul again connects the godly life, you know, like this newness of life, what you're supposed to walk in. He connects it again to the gospel. In verse 32, he says, forgive. He doesn't leave it there. He says, forgive, for you have been forgiven. Verse 1 to 2, he says, imitate God, but imitate God as a child of God. He says, walk in love, but don't just walk in love. Walk in love because you have received love in Christ. So we see this powerful. These two verses for me are so powerful. They're like, kind of like the conclusion of what's happened in chapter 4, you know, calling us to new life. And now Paul's saying, hey, but remember, remember the gospel. This is how you live out this new life. And then chapters 5 kind of stands as an introduction uh, to the two chapters, sorry, these two verses stand as an introduction to chapter 5. And you'll see he kind of then exhorts us to new ways of living a godly life. But he's saying, remember, be grounded in the gospel. Like here we see kind of the not just the method of change, you know, how do we actually change, but actually the reality of our identity, like who we really are. There's a German poet um, named Wilker, and um, he, it said that he went to a museum one day and he was looking at this like sculpture of Apollos. And he was there for a while, and as he went home, he was deeply impacted by what he saw. And what he wrote it's kind of like um, recorded that he wrote this. It says this, I must change my life. Interesting. You know, it's not like, yo, this is a powerful kind of aesthetic experience and this is really incredible, even though that it was. But what he understood is that when you see kind of the beauty and reality of what you should be, so when we see the beauty and reality of what God has created us to be, we understand that our lives must be changed. And this is the kind of transformational work of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel as it works in our lives, that it doesn't just give us the will to change, like I want to change, but it actually gives us the ability to change. So we become kind as our hearts are smashed, kind of tender. You know, as we, as we dwell and understand the gospel, our, our hard hearts are made tender. You'll remember in Ephesians 2, Paul goes on to s- describe how hard our hearts were, like where we really were and what Jesus has done to make us tender-hearted. So we're called to walk in love. So that's walking in the reality of God's love. Remember, it's not just saying, hey, you need to be loving to everybody around you. Walk in loving, in a loving kind of way to everyone around you. He's saying, walk in the reality of the love of God and allow that love to be expressed to people around you. So I want us to just kind of understand some of the, like how do we change, kind of a method of change. Um, And I heard this described by Keller and I found it so, so helpful. He basically says that there are two key ways that people change in the world. Two key ways that people change in the world. And uh, one is a mechanical way, and the other one is an organic way. And the mechanical way is this kind of like legalistic change. It basically says that I must change in order for God 
to accept me. And he, he goes on to use this illustration, which I'm going to use today. And, and his preach is, is kind of surrounded around Mark 4. It's the parable of the sower. Um, but he uses this illustration, which I found so, so helpful. So what is then mechanical change? Remember, two ways of change. Mechanical change, organic change. What is mechanical change? Mechanical change is essentially like this. You've got a brick, and you're building a wall. You put one brick on, you get another brick. Mechanical change. Putting a brick, putting another brick on. And uh, I work as an architect, so it's kind of familiar. But uh, it's basically this idea. It's like, here's your brick here. You read the book, it says, hey, you need to be kind. Oh, I need to be kind. Okay, kindness, kindness, kindness. Let me put this brick on here. Ooh, I'm kind. Next one. Oh, and I need to be forgiving. Oh, okay. Forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. Oh, there we go. I'm forgiving. And you kind of change in this mechanical way, the self-driven, self-willed way of like picking up the brick. Oh, I need to be kind, need to be kind, need to be kind. Let me build my, my kindness. Ooh, and I need to be forgiving. Let me build my forgiveness. So that's mechanical change. What then does organic change look like? Organic change looks a little bit more like a bulb. And this is um, what Ryan and Kate gave us last week. It looks a little bit more like this. It looks like a bulb. You know, the change doesn't happen mechanically. It doesn't happen in like a one-directional kind of way. But actually it's like this, this bulb that changes from the inside out. You know, it takes root and changes from the inside out. And the change which comes from it is far richer and far more beautiful and far more complex. So you don't change again. You don't change in this kind of like mechanical way, self-driven way. I need to be kind. I need to be kind. I need to be forgiving. Pick up, build your wall. But you change organically as you walk in love. And you notice this kind of balanced change, which I think is so powerful. And, and I think if you've experienced in this, in this in your life, you'll notice the change is that it's kind of balanced. You know, God makes you somehow humble yet confident at the same time. You're not saying, oh, I need to be humble, humble, humble. You know, humble myself, humble myself. Oh, but I forgot to actually have to be confident. Confidence, 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 you know, kind of building up the wall of all these different attributes that God's wanting you to do. But actually... As the Spirit works in your life, you'll see that growth begins to come and you, you find yourself, hey, I'm actually, I feel like there's a humility here, but it's also uh, got confidence in it. And I want to remind us it's not a passive work. You know, this organic change here, I think there's a photo up there, this organic change here is not a passive work. It's not just, you know, sit on your hands, let go, let God, He's going to change me no matter what I do. And it's not self-pioneered. It's not like, yo, I need to wake up early, I need to put in the hours, I need to kind of, you know, hit, hit the gym mentality and, and grow this thing. But actually, it's, it's you dig deep. And as you dig deep, God begins to renew your mind. Like Keller speaks about, you know, when, you, when you're building a wall, it's quite a heavy, it's quite a hard, it's quite a harsh thing to do. But when you're planting a, a pot plant, you know, you kind of just stick the spade in there, move a little bit of soil, plant the seed, water it, and, the, and it begins to grow. And the way we dig is like reading God's Word, allowing God's Word to renew your mind, spending time in prayer, praying to God, growing closer to Him, spending time with God's people. And as we do that, the gospel begins to sink deep into our hearts. And there's, to the greater extent that the gospel is experienced in our lives, the greater extent the love of God will be shown from us.
So as you allow the gospel to sink in, you change. And you change like a root. So it's not a mechanical change, but it's like the root of a tree. So you do something. Remember, you do something now. You do something in that, which at the same time is being done to you. You know, you're not actually making the plant grow, but you're doing specific things. You know, you're doing things, you're reading the Word, and through that, God's transforming your mind. You're planting this bulb, and at the same time, God is planting it, and God is making it grow. And what I found so powerful is that it's, it's not this kind of like mechanical, one-directional change. It takes time. It's organic. And over time, you see this tiny little plant that you once were, or this bulb that you once were, becomes like an oak tree. And I was hoping we were, well, I thought it would be in the other hall, so I was going to point at a tree behind me, but there's no trees. But um, I think you get my idea. Slowly this thing begins to grow and grow and grow, and the gospel sinks deeper in your heart, and you bear more and more fruits in your life. So I want us to just run quickly to one illustration in Galatians 2, which I found helpful just to help us see some of this. And we see an encounter between Peter and Paul. And uh, basically, some of the context here is that Peter has um, kind of acted in racism towards Gentile Christians, and he's decided that he's, he's not going to sit with them and eat. He's going to only sit with the Jews. And um, he's a Jew himself, so there's this kind of like growing up with this inherent kind of racism, and then also there's fear of man, you know, because people are going to look at him funny if he's now sitting with the Gentiles. And um, we just see the way that Paul confronts him. So if you can just go with me to Galatians 2.11. He says, But when Cephas, that's in the ESV, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Those are the Jews, the circumcision party, yeah? Cool name. Uh, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct and was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let me see in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know the person is not justified by the works of the law. The person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So it's quite powerful because, you know, just think of your own circumstance. Think of you facing that. You see someone acting out in racism. What do you think you would say? And I think what's powerful here is Paul doesn't go up to him and say, hey, Peter, don't you remember? Like, that's, that's a no-no. You don't act out in racism. That's on the naughty list. We need some mechanical change here. You know, change your behavior here quickly. And that obviously would have been true. But again, that's, that's, that's resulting in like a legalistic and a mechanical change. What he does rather is he says, hey, you know, you, you don't really get the gospel. You're not living in line of the gospel. And if you really knew what the gospel meant... You would have understood that you yourself were foreign. You were part of a foreign race. God brought you near. Now you're a son. You were a foreigner. Now you're a son. So you need to treat others in that way. He's basically saying you're not walking in love, Peter, because you haven't allowed the gospel to sink deep into your heart. 
so deep that you begin to understand your foreignness and now how you've been accepted. So we see here we need to push the gospel deep into our hearts until it explodes to new life. And this is why I love this, this kind of analogy of the plant. This, this pip, I mean, you can even see it's like exploded in half and these roots are going down deep and it's beginning to grow. The deeper the roots go, the more it grows. So just a conclusion, I, w- I want to remind us. We kind of see in Paul, in these passages, there's, a, there's a, in a way, a, a first and a second clause. And firstly, he's saying, hey, be kind and be forgiving. Put off anger, be kind and be forgiving. And in a way, you can see the, hey, mechanical change. Isn't he calling us to mechanical change? But he goes on and says, as God in Christ forgave you. Organic change. Or walk in love. Maybe it's mechanical change, but walk in love as you are loved. Organic change. And this is the real power of, ch- of change in our lives. And I, I want us to understand that it's not just a reciprocal change. You know, reciprocal basically means Jesus loved me so much, you know, now I, I, you know, I ought to actually love other people. You know, surely I should, you know, kind of love other people because look how much I've been loved. But actually it's, 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 a, it's a really like an empowered way of change. It's not just reciprocal, like he did to me, therefore I must do. But actually he did to you, therefore you're empowered to do. And the doing is an overflow of what he's done for you. hope that makes sense. So this basically, as Christians then, you know, as we begin to walk in new levels of godliness, we don't just become more, mor- more moral people. We don't just become more kind of people who kind of adhere to the moral standards of what the Bible says. But actually, we become people whose roots are changed. Our roots are changed at the very core. John Newton um, says this. He says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. To see the law by love fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. So you might be here this morning and you feel like maybe it's anger. You know, God's highlighting anger in your heart. Or maybe there's another type of sin that the Holy Spirit has highlighted to you. And you might be here thinking, you know, actually, I've tried. Like, I appreciate your words and what you're saying, but I've tried. Like, I've really tried to get rid of this thing. I've really tried to put off anger, and it just doesn't work in my life. And I just want to take a moment to say to you that the gospel is, like, the gospel's powerful. Like the change that the gospel can bring is powerful. That the gospel has the power to change the worst of sins and the worst of situations. And again, it's not mechanical change. It might not be quick. It might not be fast. It might not be linear. But it will happen. It's organic change. As the gospel begins to sink deep into our hearts, we begin begin to change. That over time... This kind of tiresome work, you know, of putting off anger. We feel like we're tired just trying to put off anger. That the duty of a slave will over time become the choice of a child. I love that phrase. The duty of a slave, this thing that you felt like was just a duty for you, will become a choice as you begin to understand your childness more and more. So as we rooted in the gospel, we will begin to live out the fruits of that life. Cool. Can I pray for us? Father God, we, we want to humbly come before you this morning, Father. And again, I pray 
We wouldn't leave here just with a new understanding of what you called us to. We would leave with a deep sense of empowerment, that we have been empowered to live new. And I want to pray for people, perhaps here this morning, who feel like they've come almost to the end of themselves. Like this is, you know, this is the hundredth time that I've tried to act in sexual purity here, and I always fail. Or I always try and, you know, kind of act in kindness, but I always just, this anger just builds up and there's nothing that I can do to kind of dull it down and hold it back and it becomes kind of suddenly it's, it's expressed. And I want to ask, Father, that you would help us even, even as we come to the end of our souls, that in a way that would, that would be the place that you want us to be, that we would click. Hey, this is not self-willed. This is letting it be put away. We're missing it. We're saying, oh, I need, to, I need to throw it off. I need to throw it off. Father, help us to see we need to let it be put away. We almost need to open our hands and say, Father, take it. And I pray by your spirit that you would, that you would cause us as a community and your church, your universal church, to be people who put off anger and who respond in kindness. And I pray that we would see the power of that, the power of, of Christians who are walking in love, who imitate the character of their father, that people would see that and be amazed. People would be drawn to you, Father God. We, we thank you for who you are, and we pray that you would transform our lives like trees which grow and bear fruit, King. In your name, amen.